The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so, uh, good evening, everyone. And uh, those of you who've come over the years uh, will might remember that um, this particular holiday, the Martin Luther King holiday, is my favorite American holiday. And um, partly because I'm so inspired by the work of Martin Luther King and, and uh, the amazing influence he's had on many people's lives, including my own. Can people hear okay? <clears throat> And um, so in spending the day thinking about, you know, what could I talk about this evening? Um, my thoughts kept coming back somehow that I should somehow relate it to Martin Luther King's uh, work or some connection somehow. And, um, but I, I don't think that he would care so much if we talked about him. Um, I don't think he was so much about what it was in, he wasn't in for himself and what he, how he wrote about it, but rather he was in it for the greater good of our society. And uh, he was one of the, one of the remarkable ways that, uh, influ- I think one of, the, one of his contributions was his beautiful articulation of how we're all in it together. Uh, that uh, it's not, uh, we're not separate from each other, but we influence each other's mutuality in our society. And so we have this quote. All I'm saying is simply this that all life is interrelated, that somehow we're caught in an incredible network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects me directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. So this idea of we're all interrelated so what's the connection between Martin Luther King and what he stood for and coming to a meditation center and meditating? And for me, one of the connections that is that um, if in my life, as I look at how I've been changed and grown through my life, uh, meditation had a, had a variety of very profound influences on me or effects on me. And one of the ones that I wasn't looking for Many of them I wasn't looking for. I was just minding my business and uh, meditating away. And then uh, these, some certain changes happened that I, hadn't occurred to me that would happen. But one of them was that, um, a very important one for me, was that my sense of self began to shift and change. Or to say it differently, uh, perhaps, um, uh, I stopped operating with very, a, a very strong, hardly bounded sense of self. Uh, that I'm here and people are out there, that I was separate from. Um, and it wasn't exactly that I, you know, I could say that I felt connected to people uh, more through meditation, but it was as if um, you know, the empathy w- became stronger, the sense that how other people were, what they felt, what was their, their well-being, was imp- not only important to me, but uh, because me wasn't so important anymore. <laughs> It wasn't that it was important to me. It bec- it's almost as if th- th- it became me. And that was, you know, that's kind of a remarkable aspect of this. It's almost as if um, how other people are and what they feel and their well-being became as important you know, to me as me, as my well-being, or, 
or you know, there's, no, there's a sense of separation in this regard wasn't quite there. It's almost as if um, you know we're we're all connected in the way that our left and right hand are connected. You can say that they're separate, but they kind of are also very much related to each other. And this was quite a surprise for me to feel this, because, uh, and the result was that a very important part of my life, I mean, kind of a governing principle of my, of my life since uh, this meditation had this effect on me, was to live a life that tried to uh, better the world, tried to make a difference, try to improve people, make things, you know, somehow respond to the suffering of the world. And um, because of the cause and conditions of my life and what I how it wasn't, you know, my practice and things. Uh, I've taken the route of doing that through Buddhism and through Buddhist practice because I saw how effective it is and meaningful it is for instituting uh, personal change, for helping people overcome their suffering. And there, But there are many other ways of responding to suffering in the world. Uh, the critique that people can have of Buddhists like me, uh, which is an interesting critique, I think it's worth you know considering, is that um, you know meditation seems to mostly involve the individual, individual change. You know, focusing on yourself. We sit here and we close our eyes, and um, and what does this have to do with what happens out, you know, in further away in the city and the poverty and the war and all that? It seems like you're kind of maybe avoiding engaging in the social issues of our times in favor of some personal self-help kind of thing that's only going to be good for yourself. Isn't that interesting critique? Um, and so, and so if, that's what, if, if that critique is true, I would be heartbroken. You know, that I, you know, hadn't, I hadn't, didn't want to base my life on just kind of, uh, you know, self-help approach that made people just feel good at the expense of ignoring everybody else. What I hope is that as, and what I have put my faith in, is that as uh, we begin to look deeply at ourselves, that the meditation does, that the forces of, of uh, well, in Buddhist, Buddhist terms, greed, hate, and delusion begin lessening for us. The forces of fear, the forces of um, separation, of bias, um, of greed begin to decrease and get replaced by things like greater sense of connectedness and love and caring. And in that love and caring becomes an interest to live a life for the betterment of others, that we feel connected to others. So I, I see these kind of very closely connected. I, I don't see one or the other. Um, and I would like to hopefully see a society where the inner, inner transformation is seen as being intimately connected to the outer transformation of people. And the outer transformation is connected to the inner transformation, not one or the other. And I've known people who have had outer transformations in their life, where their life has been improved dramatically um, in kind of worldly terms, but there was no inner, well, uh, improvement. In fact, they were miserable, maybe more miserable than they were before. So just to focus on outward improvement of people misses something very important. To focus only on the inner improvement of people I think also misses something important because I hope that we're somehow in it for as a society to support each other. Um, so what some people do on Martin Luther King Day is not remember Martin Luther King so much, but it's supposed to be a service day. 
to go out and be of service in our community. And how many of you did that today? Four people? That's impressive. Or oh, another hand went up. Five? <laughs> Six? <laughs> so, um, yes? I'm not the one who's evaluating it. I think you have to decide for yourself. I think it counts if you don't usually do it. And um, so, um, I think it it wasn't meant uh, because of the holiday, but as it turns out, my 14-year-old son uh, went today uh, to volunteer at the Second Harvest which is a, uh, one of the largest food banks in the country that serves Santa Clara and Santa Mateo County here. And um, the reason he went is that he has a eighth grade project. He, they have a, his, his school, they, all the students have to do a, a year-long project, eighth grade project. Like, and so he spent a long time thinking what he wants to do. And uh, his, his big thing is movie making that these days. That's his passion, is making movies. So he decided that he would make a documentary and he decided to make a documentary on hunger in San Mateo County. And so he uh, uh, went and, and uh, you know, went twice now to meet with someone at Second Harvest, someone who kind of, I don't know, public relations person, I think. And the uh, second time he brought his buddy with him and they set up cameras and lights and everything and he interviewed her. And then to kind of find out more about all this, he went and volunteered today. And down in San Jose, and um, and so then he's uh, also maybe maybe he heard about there's a homeless shelter in Redwood City where someone here at IMC is connected, and uh, she said that um, if he wants he, uh, she'll bring him there, and uh, those people who live there at the shelter will probably be very happy to talk to him, and he got very kind of excited by this idea. So my son is 14, is learning about what goes on in our county. And our, and our community, Silicon Valley. And he is amazed as he's studying this uh, to discover the disparity in wealth that happens to be around here. Some of you probably noticed. But um, he had, you know, I don't think he really understood until he started seeing the statistics of what goes on. Um, he asked me today, <clears throat> how many millionaires are there in Silicon Valley? I said, I don't know. And uh, so he went on, online and read and everything, and he came back and he said, he claimed, uh, he cla- I don't know how we, what, what he found, but he just told me this. He said, uh, uh, there's well over 10,000 millionaires in Silicon Valley. So I don't know what that's... But then, that's you know 10,000. How many people do you think that Second Harvest Food Bank feeds every month? In, in San Mateo and in Silicon Valley, San Mateo and Santa Clara County. Uh, 250,000 people a month get fed by Second Harvest. That's a phenomenal number. It, uh, uh, it's um, 10% of the population of these two counties get served by the food bank, this particular food bank. And they don't feel that because there's uh, 2.5 million people in these two counties. So 250,000 people get fed every month. 
and uh, and uh, in their literature, they claim that you know that they, they they don't feed all the people hungry in the county. There's a lot more hungry people than are um, in um, you know they than they feed. And their literature says that um, the way they word it repeatedly, they say one in four people in these two counties are at risk of being at hunger. That's quite impressive. And we have a school here in Redwood City where 80% of the kids uh, uh, live in poverty and are eligible for or get uh, food assistance in the school because their families can't afford lunches and things like that. That's quite impressive. So my son's reading these things. You know, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And um, so, what, you know, what do we do? You know, what, what, is, what, what is our role? And how, how do we take into account this disparity? Um, do we just kind of say, well, that's the way it's supposed to be? And, um, or it has nothing to do with, nothing, it has nothing to do with me. I mean, it's those other people. Uh, it has to do with them. Someone else is supposed to do something about it. Or, you know, everyone's responsible for themselves and that's what they got, that's what they got into in their life and it's nothing to do with me. They better work harder or whatever. I don't know what. You know, how do we feel? How do we connect? Uh, are we connected to it? So my, my hope certainly is that Buddhist practitioners um, begin to become relaxed enough, still enough, to begin noticing. And in the stillness of their own hearts, to not only notice, uh, but to be moved by what they see. And in being moved, then to do something, to respond to the suffering of our world. We can't respond to every possible thing that uh, the world comes along, but perhaps we can respond to some things, and perhaps we can respond more as we come along with what, you know, inspires us, what's meaningful for us, and what to do. So, you know, in my, in my example, uh, um, I don't do, a, I don't go to food, uh, I, I don't go to food banks, I don't do a lot of these things, because I feel that the best use of my time and effort is to be a meditation teacher. I feel that uh, I serve a lot of people, I meet a lot of people who suffer, and this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, that I have, I don't, I'm, I don't know if I want to say skill for, but um, somehow the cause and conditions that come together, this is what I could offer. And so I try to do this the best I can, and I work hard at it, I think. I spend a lot of time doing it. So this is my response. And when I see suffering in the world outside of the, my circle, um, one of the things I try to do is uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use that energy that gives me and try to do a better job here to respond. And it's amazing what comes in through our door here. Um, you don't get to talk to them, many of them. But uh, what comes through this door is an amazing cross-section of our society. And, um, and they say, it's been said, that no one comes to Buddhism without suffering. So that suffering is somehow behind it. So you know, um, um, you know the, the, the amount of suffering that comes through this door is quite impressive. And I'm not saying this to depress you, I'm saying that, you know, ju- I'm trying to justify myself. <laughs> you know why I'm not out there. 
I don't have to go out there. <laughs> I don't have to go out there. It comes here. <laughs> so then, you know, people also, you know, people who come regularly to Buddhism, you know, sometimes want to see Buddhist resources or Buddhist teachings that might somehow relate to this issue of social engagement, social justice, doing something. And um, if you go back to the time of the Buddha, uh, we see, and we see that, uh, that the society was so radically different back there. I mean, I think that if you did uh, occupy the palace back then, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that uh, it was off with your head. You know, there wasn't, you know, that was basically it, you know. I mean, the, it was a, you know, a very authoritative, it was run by a king. A king had absolute power. And um, there's depictions in the ancient texts of the various tortures and the ways that the ancient kings would kill people uh, with very little compunction. So the idea of protesting the king, uh, even if the king was not doing things very well in society, uh, was not an easy thing to do. So you, don't, can't, you can't go back to... The, you know, we live in a society now where speaking up against social justice uh, doesn't put you... Uh, in the guillotine so easily. So uh, there's much more uh, teachings about this now than there was 2,500 years ago when it was more dangerous to do so. Uh, However, what the ancient Buddhist tradition, perhaps the Buddha himself did, was some of the social teachings for justice that that were offered were couched in stories, in mythology. and uh, so there's one ancient uh, Buddhist discourse that's attributed to the Buddha. And um, if it's attributed to the Buddha, um, I think it's an example of the Buddha um, being a storyteller and telling stories, telling myths, kind of making up myths in order to make a point. And, um, and he's kind of playing with some of the ancient myths of India at his time. But he has, in this particular story, and uh, he um, discourse on turning of the wheel uh, in the long discourses of the Buddha. Uh, it starts at a time when human beings live to be 80,000 years old. So now you see a kind of mythic, we're in the realm of myth here. 80,000 years. And, um, and there was a king who ruled the people there great monarch. And he was so great that he had all the um, symbols of royal power that were important in ancient India. And the first of those symbols is called um, uh, uh, the, uh, the wheel, the, the royal wheel, or the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, it was actually the text, they call it the wheel treasure, the treasure of the wheel. And the, the wheel was considered to be a symbol of power. And it seems like in this myth, there was this kind of like mythic wheel that somehow floated in space someplace in the sky or floated outside the palace that symbolized his power and his rule, that he ruled the great expanse of India. At some point, he decided that uh, he was getting to be old. Maybe he was, I don't know, 70,000 years old. And um, he decided to step down as the king. And he passed the... the, um, the kingdom to his son. His son became king 
And when his son became king, he noticed that the, that great symbolic wheel was no longer present. It disappeared. So he called all his wise counselors together and said, what happened to that symbol of royal power? And the, and, um, and the, and the counselors said this, and this is perhaps uh, one of the, one of the, through myth, the Buddha is making a point about you know, trying to say something to the local kings maybe of his time. So they said, oh, the, the counselors say to this, you know, this mythic king, a new king, he says, oh, the, 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 the symbolic, the symbol of royal po- power doesn't transfer from one king to the next. The new king has to earn it. You, it's by how you rule that, 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 you, that you, you, you acquire the symbol of power. So he asks, well, how do I rule? And he says, you rule righteously and you protect people and you uh, uh, prevent poverty and you, you know, do a variety of kind of good for your people. And if you do those kinds of things, then the, this, uh, this wheel will reappear. So he goes and he does all these righteous things, the universal righteous duties of a king protects everyone, prevents poverty in his kingdom. And, um, and sure enough, that wheel reappears. So he lives, everyone lives happily for another 70,000 years, however long, until he decides to retire. And he passes the kingdom on to his son. And the same thing happens. But with the next one, what happens? Next uh, king, the, he calls the counselors together and he says, you know, that big wheel has disappeared you know, what happened? You know, it's supposed to be a symbol of power and they explain, well, you have to do all these things in order to earn it or to, to appear. And so he um, said, okay. So he does most of those things. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't prevent poverty. And because he doesn't prevent poverty, people go hungry, some people. And because they go hungry, they steal. And then people go to the king and say, oh, this person stole. And so then the king called them to the court and said, did you steal? And he said, yeah, I stole. And so you shouldn't steal. Stop stealing and I'll give you some, all kinds of stuff so you stop stealing. And so then um, other people saw, oh, if you steal, the king will give you a lot of stuff. <laughs> so they stole, more people stole. And after a while, the king caught on. This is not working. So instead of um, uh, giving them stuff, the people who are the robbers, the people who are the thieves, he said, well, what I'll do is I'll just uh, chop off their heads. Kill them. But when he killed them, capital punishment, then the populace thought, oh, this is a dangerous now, and we should arm ourselves. And they kind of armed themselves with all the good top te- technology weapons of their time. And, uh, and then they started going around and robbing and stealing and, and fighting. And as they did that, then the king got even more involved in fighting and protecting and the violence of his times. And then people, because of that, people started lying. Before that, no one lied. And so that, that this discourse des- uh, describes the progressive decline of society. And as they do this, it apparently takes a long time, because as they do this, 
um, people's lifetimes decrease. So, and so first they go from 80,000 80, to 40,000 years, then 40 to 20, 20 to 10, it goes down, 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 it goes eventually down to only seven days when things become really bad. They become so bad that uh, people, all they do is they go around with weapons, killing each other, not recognizing each other as human beings, just as beasts and animals, uh, killing themselves left and right. Except for a group of people who go, uh, don't want to kill and they go running into the forest and hide for those seven days. And I guess everyone else gets killed off. They kill each other off. And when it's all quieted down, they come out of the forest and they say, oh, there you are, we survived. And they say, what if we don't kill? And so they don't kill. And then they say, you know, and then their lifespan expanded. I don't know how long. And they say, oh, this is good. Our lifespan expanded. What if we do more, live, uh, live in, in more ethical ways? Yeah, let's, let's not steal. Their lifespan expands. Let's not um, engage in lying. Their lifespan expands. So then it goes in the other direction, right? Until finally we're back at the 80,000 year lifespan of people. And at that point, you know, uh, then in this, this particular discourse, this myth, um, uh, it's so far in the future that uh, the time, it becomes the time of Maitreya Buddha, the next Buddha to be. So, indirectly, this is a story about a few things interesting. One is that, um, that the, the duty of a king is to protect the populace, is to be concerned with their welfare. I can imagine this wasn't necessarily the highest priority of some of the kings in the Buddha's time. The, um, um, but also it was an idea that the, the, the power, this is another idea that appears elsewhere in the Buddhist discourses as well, is that the authority of a king arises out of the people, rises from what the king does and the authority that's given by the people who uh, live, live there. And it's not granted, it's not hereditary, it's not divine. So this is 2,500 years ago, so this is quite something to kind of imply. Um, uh, but rather, uh, the, um, the right to rule comes from how you behave. And this goes along uh, with a huge turn in philosophy or in religious teachings that the Buddha was part of in ancient India, where, where um, what became important in ethics was not uh, ritual, was not how you were born, born in different castes, um, but rather what was important was your, your behavior and more specifically the intention behind your behavior. And so the, uh, uh, the source of ethical evaluation became the quality of your intention of what you did. So if, if your intention was uh, motivated by greed, hate, and delusion, then it was considered unethical and had uh, um, deleterious effects. If what was, you were motivated by love and generosity and wisdom, it had a different effect. And so the quality of your ethical behavior the, uh, was what shaped you and your society. And so this mutuality, this way in which we're all kind of in it together, also comes through in the story, is that our behavior... First there's, there's uh, stealing, and then there's more stealing, and then there's killing and lying and all these things. 
that these, these kinds of ethical behavior in this myth aren't just things that happen alone un, uh, without an effect on anything else, but they have a profound effect on the world that those people are living in. And their lifespan, and their, you know, everything changes. In other discourses where similar idea appears, um, uh, the, the nature of the physical world begins shifting in, in ways as well. So, at least in the ancient world, the idea was that our world we live in is affected by the ethical quality that motivates our actions. <coughs> so, this is a crazy myth, right? You know, because, you know, how could people's ethical actions and inner intentions of greed, hate, and delusion have big effects on our world, right? I mean, that's, isn't that unheard of? Until this last century. And that's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing it big time. I mean, that's really, you know, the effect that humans have had on our, on our globe, in our environment, in our society, and this world we live in, um, is huge. And it doesn't take a lot of analysis to dig behind the surface and say, eventually it comes back to people's hearts, individual hearts, and maybe collectively many hearts. You know, what motivates, what comes out of people's hearts. Is it beautiful or is it ugly? Is it, is it fear or hate? Or is it generosity and love? Someone, I hope, I hope that some people are trying to change their hearts. Because if there's no change of heart, then what do we have to rely on to try to create a just society or a safe society for everyone? Do we then rely on the police or the armies? Do we rely on draconian rules and laws? You know, I put my hope that if there's really going to be change and ho- for people, I hope it's uh, through change of heart. And I hope that uh, meditation is one of those tools that creates the best conditions or very good conditions for making our hearts malleable, to let our hearts grow, or, let the, or to help support letting the best qualities inside of us come forth out into the world. Here's a nice Martin Luther King quote. So he's talking about people in the United States. Uh, We may all have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. That's nice. We're all in it together now. How can we not be? So uh, one of the qualities of, uh, you know, at least from my point of view or Buddhist point of view, of a mature heart, a good heart that's grown and developed, it's a heart that never turns its back on anybody. It's, uh, sometimes we step back, maybe we need to, but we never turn our hearts our back, the, back, the heart never turns its back towards anybody. The heart stays open, heart stays available, stays concerned. Even if we have to step back and protect ourselves at times, we never close our hearts to anybody. And if we don't, if, because once the heart is closed, then be careful. It could be 
your lifespan will decrease. As said, there was a, there was a doctor in England many years ago, like in 200 years ago, who apparently had a huge anger problem. And he said at one point, one of these days, the person who makes me angry is going to cause me my death. And then he apparently had got angry with someone in a heart attack and died. So don't close your hearts. Keep it open. You won't live 80,000 years, but... The other thing Martin Luther King said, I looked at some quotes from Lillard's writings today, and um, you know, in relationship to this 80,000 year you know, lifespan, uh, he, was, he said repeatedly, um, what's important is the quality of your life, not the length that you live. So I suppose, how old was it Martin Luther King when he died? 36, 39, something like that, in his late 30s? Someone know? Died a young man, relatively. I suppose his quality of his life was pretty high. He chose the life that he lived in many ways. He chose how to respond in a world that he didn't choose to live in, but he, he chose how to respond and to respond with that kind of courage. Uh, it was quite a phenomenal thing, quite amazing. And, um, and he claimed that uh, anybody could do what he did. Anybody is available, uh, capable of doing great things if they serve. So um, I hope that was okay, my thoughts for today, Martin Luther King. And uh, I hope that um, when you do sit down to meditate, that you sit down to occupy your heart. And in doing that, may your heart be open to everyone. May all beings live in your heart. So, thank you.